If you would actually turn to the text listed there in the opposite order. So we'll read Exodus 12 first and go from there to 1 Corinthians 11. The title of the sermon is In Remembrance of Me, Connecting the Passover to the Lord's Supper. If you would please stand together as these texts are read, thereby expressing our reverence for God's written and inspired word. Exodus 12, verses 1 through 13. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire, with unleavened bread and bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Please turn over now to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And I'll begin at verse 17. But in the following instructions I do not commend you, because when you come together it is not for the better but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you, in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat, for in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. As far as the reading of God's word, let's pray. We ask now that by your spirit, dear Lord, you would add your blessing to the reading and especially the preaching of your word. 
that you'd help us to understand the beautiful relationship between word and sacrament, and that you'd help us to believe that through them you continue not only to convince and convert sinners, but also to build us up in holiness and comfort through faith unto salvation. Bless us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. A couple of weeks ago, I had the privilege of preaching on the subject of baptism, and it, it feels like in some ways this is a little bit of a follow-up to that, at least insofar as we're now looking at the second of the sacraments that the Lord Jesus himself instituted. And I would like to begin uh, talking about the Lord's Supper by talking about the importance of food. Food is very important. How many of you have not eaten today? The answer is likely none. When you think about it, Eating is all over the Bible, and to say it uh, almost playfully, but uh, with sincerity, that the Bible begins and ends with eating. As early as Genesis 3, uh, we see there Adam placed in the garden, and eating was a good thing, even though they ate sinfully. You can't miss the fact that in the context of creation, one of the first things we see mankind do is eat. We've read uh, Exodus 12, the story of the Passover, and we'll come back to that. But when you get to the other side of the Bible, one of the last things that we see the people of God doing in Scripture is what? Eating at the table, the wedding supper of the Lamb. And so tonight we're going to look at what in many ways is the thread that binds this all together, the Lord's Supper, the table of the Lord. And we'll look at it through the three points that are given you there in your bulletin why we need the Lord's Supper, what we remember in the Lord's Supper, and then finally, what do we proclaim? An angle by which we might look at the Christian life and perhaps even summarize it would be the language of giving and receiving. In many ways, you could summarize the Christian life in terms of giving and receiving. To say it a little bit differently, we give because we receive And of all the things that God freely gives to us, he also gives us the privilege of giving back to him. And the first thing, the greatest thing that God gives us, of course, is the gospel. God so loved the world that he gave. He gave his son. His son gave his life. He gave his life a sacrifice for our sins. He gave his life in our place. The grace of all gifts that we received is the gift of eternal life. And all that we have, when you think about it, all that we have comes from God. But that, that is not simply true of eternal things. It's also true of earthly things. All of the earthly things that we have, all of our possessions come from God. And it is in many ways this question of the giving and receiving of earthly things that actually sets the stage for the Lord's Supper treatment in 1 Corinthians 11. This is why I read from the text that comes just before verses 23 through 26. So you might say it like this. The Corinthian church had received, but it was failing to give. That was the issue. The church had received, but it was failing to give. To give. What Paul describes here in 1 Corinthians 11 is kind of a church horror show. It's, it would be funny, except for the fact that it's not. The Corinthians had come together for a meal. So far, so good. This meal was to be the Lord's Supper. So far, so better. 
It had the features of potluck or fellowship to it in the sense that people, individuals, and families brought what they had from home. You know that that wonderful feeling it is, at least in our house, the favorite day of the month or every other month as as we have it here uh, is our fellowship meal Sunday. And it's just, to me, fantastic. Even though I'm somehow obligated to be the last person in line. Not sure what that's written in the very small print in the back of someone's Bible somewhere, I imagine. But it's still just a great time just to watch the church family get together, to watch little kids run around outside, uh, to watch people that don't know one another very well sit across the table and become friends and old friends continue to have fellowship. And, and if you stand at the fence, kind of look the long view down, it looks like a big family having a great time. That's not how it was happening in Corinth. In many ways, it was the opposite. People did indeed bring what they had from home, but some had the ability to bring much, and others had very little ability to bring anything at all. There was an abundance of food, and there was even apparently quite a bit of wine. There was just one problem. Not everyone had abundance. In a certain sense, the church was clearly and visibly divided into the haves and the have-nots. And how could you tell them apart? Well, those who had an abundance were eating excessively and even on their own schedule. This is like not only a parent's nightmare, or excuse me, a pastor's nightmare, it's a parent's nightmare. Uh, they're eating out of order. Uh, they're not praying together. They're not on the same schedule. Everyone's sort of doing their own thing. They were going ahead, at least some of them, with their own meal, while others apparently stood around literally watching in hunger. And this is the church in Corinth. And not only were they eating out of turn, Paul uses the language uh, that the rich were effectively humiliating the poor. And they did this by not sharing with one another. They did this by eating ahead of one another. And unambiguously, a spirit of selfishness prevailed over the supper in the church. It's a horror show. It's almost kind of hard to imagine And it gets worse. Those who had an abundance of food also apparently had an abundance of wine. Clearly they were Presbyterian. And they drank. And they drank a lot. And they drank abundantly. And abundantly. Until abundantly turned into excessively to the point of Paul literally calling them out as getting drunk during the Lord's Supper. It's a horror show. Imagine the sight, the haves and the have-nots, visibly distinguished, some eating while others do not, those with food going ahead of those without anything to the point of feeling humiliated, and while some are humiliated publicly, others are inebriated publicly during the Lord's Supper. Say it differently, a drunk church. Isn't that an oxymoron? A drunk church at the Lord's Supper during the fellowship meal. And so Paul raises this question both at the beginning of this section and then he reintroduces the language towards the end. Shall I commend you in this? And in the Greek, it's very easy when you want to ask a question that has a yes or no possibility. If the question expects a yes or a no, there's a little particle that you can insert that anticipates the answer to the question, but you've already anticipated the answer to the question. Shall I commend you in this? There is no way. The answer 
is no. <clears throat> Paul does not commend them for this. Rather, he chides them, as you see at the beginning and again at verse 17. Twice he tells them that he does not commend them for this because he does not approve. But the question becomes, at this horror show that is at the same time the Lord's Supper, what will be the remedy? How do you fix a selfish church? Well, by pointing them to the one who gave himself selflessly selflessly on their behalf. And that takes us to our second point. Uh, What is it that we're called to remember? The language of remembering is very important to the church. The language of remembering is very important in the Bible. The language of remembering is at the heart of uh, the Lord's Supper. And notice again uh, that Paul uses this language of what he has first received, verse 23, is what he has given to the church. If I said earlier that the Christian life might be summarized as giving and receiving, clearly that's the pattern in the life of the Apostle Paul. He has received from the Lord, and now he gives. Uh, We have absolutely no idea when it is that he received this instruction from the Lord. In other words, when did Jesus teach him about the Lord's Supper? We do not know. Uh, But the when is not nearly as important as the what. It's what Paul has to say. It's what Paul has received and is what Paul has given to the church that matters now. Paul met the resurrected Jesus. And that resurrected Jesus whom he met bound himself to the church. When you pause and think about it, uh, Paul met The one that he refers to as the Lord Jesus on the road to Damascus. Paul met the Lamb of God who gave his life to take away the sins of the church. Paul met the Son of God who alone had power to forgive sinners. And Paul, who calls himself the chief of sinners, was forgiven a great and awful load. Think just for a moment in the context of giving and receiving. Think uh, just for a moment of the awful burden that Paul bore when he was still Saul. The awful burden of sin upon his shoulders as he met the Lord Jesus. And then think of how joyful he must have been to know that the burden of his sins was removed. Paul the persecutor. Paul the murderer. Paul the slanderer. Paul, the idolater, forgiven, having received. And not only receiving a great and joyful forgiveness, he also receives a ministry of word and deed, or what we should call this evening, a ministry of word and sacrament. And it's this ministry of word and sacrament that Paul received that he now refers to as having given also to the church, and he impacts the details, which are quite lovely. Again, that phrase, the Lord Jesus. When did he first hear that phrase? In Acts chapter 9. When he met the Lord Jesus on the road to Damascus. I actually went through in my own little uh, nerdy way, looking at a lot of places where he uses this language, which he uses about almost 50 times in the New Testament. Paul refers to Jesus this way as the Lord Jesus. One of my favorite is also in the book of Acts verse or chapter 20, verse 24. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus, that I received, that I might testify to the gospel of the grace of God. It was this Lord Jesus who was betrayed, 
not simply by Paul, but even by his friends. And this is the point that Paul makes, that the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, gave. Now, if it was the night that you knew you're going to be betrayed, would you be giving? Well, maybe punishment. But Jesus gave. It's a beautiful and sobering thought. On the night that he was betrayed by his friends, on the night that he was betrayed as well by his enemies, the Lord Jesus gave on the night that he was betrayed. To say it differently, on the night that he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus did not respond in kind, but rather with kindness. He took bread. It was the Passover meal. It was an evening meal. And he showed that the true significance of the Passover did not lie simply in eating and drinking, a problem that the Corinthians were stumbling over. The point of the food was not the food. The point of the wine was not the wine. He is the point of the bread and the wine. He would fulfill the Passover and all of its substance in himself. It was his body that had to be broken. It was his blood that had to be spilt. That beautiful line in Exodus 12, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. Judgment would fall upon the victim, the lamb, and those hidden underneath the lamb would be saved. His body would be broken just like the bread, and it was to be eaten, and also in a similar manner, not eating the physical flesh of Jesus or drinking his actual blood, but nonetheless, in a sacramental sense, they were to eat the bread. They were to drink the wine, and they were to do this in remembrance of me. And so now I want to talk about remembering. It's really a big deal. It's starting to bother me, though, because I'm 51, and it seems like nearly every day someone reminds me how imperfect my memory is. Where were we? That's why I have my notes. And even checked to make sure that they were on my iPad before I came. So remembering is a very important idea in the Bible. It's a very covenantal and rich idea. God's relationship to his people is often described in terms of remembering. God remembered Noah in the days of the flood. And it's when God remembered Noah that it stopped raining while Noah and his family were on the ark. God remembered his promises to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And there were many occasions when God remembering those promises was invoked. God remembered those same promises, in particular when Israel sinned to the point of God almost uh, striking Israel out from under the sun. And Moses uh, called God to remember, not that God forgot, but God remembered his people and God remembered his promises. Our church in St. Augustine had on its bulletin uh, Psalm 121.11. God remembers his covenant forever. God is a remembering God. It's a wonderful word to think about in connection with our God. He never forgets, and he never forgets us. He remembers his covenant, and he remembers his people. He remembers his promise, and he remembers the Passover. But not only is God himself a remembering God, he calls his people to be a remembering people. So Jesus also takes the cup. After the supper and says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And it's really quite lovely language that when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, uh, we were doing this in remembrance of me. 
Just as the old covenant was ratified with blood, so also is the new covenant ratified with blood. And we remember the blood of our Savior. It's only, in this case, the blood of Christ that seals the new covenant, but then goes on to perpetuate it in a certain sense, uh, bringing us back to that occasion when God made the covenant, bring us back to that covenant, when God, that time when God signed and sealed it in the blood of his son. The Lord's Supper takes our gaze backwards to what Christ has already done, but it doesn't stop there. It doesn't simply take us back and make us remember. It also gives us occasion to celebrate. Very importantly, when we think about the Lord's Supper, uh, we should not think in terms of funeral. We should actually think in terms of wedding. And who goes to a wedding and is sad? Well, I mean, maybe the father of the bride. I don't know. <laughs> but there's a reason why we use the term not simply taking the Lord's Supper or remembering the Lord's Supper, but very fittingly celebrating. We celebrate. On the one hand, it's true. Jesus died. But we celebrate. Why? Because Jesus is not still dead. We celebrate the fact that he offered up a once and for all sacrifice for our sins. But even more importantly, we celebrate his life, his resurrection triumph over death, the Passover lamb back from the dead. For it was not before the resurrection, but after that Paul received this ministry of word and sacrament from Jesus The Lord's Supper takes us back to what did happen, but it also looks forward. It takes us ahead down the trail, even fixing our eyes upon things that are yet to come. But in that context, then, I want to move to our third and final point and ask the question, uh, what is it that we proclaim? If the Lord's Supper takes us back, if the Lord's Supper calls us to remember, if the Lord's Supper gives us something to celebrate, it also gives us something to proclaim. We say something. Together, It's really uh, quite a lovely idea. This last verse is sort of unique in the sense that uh, it comes in the context of 1 Corinthians 11. It's got an added hue of color that you don't see in the Gospels. Why? Because in the Gospels, when Jesus gives the institution of the Lord's Supper, he has not yet died and he has not yet been raised. But now on this side of the resurrection, uh, there's an addition, and it's this word of proclamation. So again, verse 26, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Uh, It's really a beautiful verse. The church has big words coming now. Put on your seatbelt. The church has a collective voice and an eschatological task. A collective voice and an eschatological task. You say, Pastor, what do those words even mean? Well, thank you for asking. As we celebrate the Lord's Supper together, we proclaim something. The church proclaims something. Stop and think about it. The Lord's Supper is, in many ways, a beautiful drama. It is not only hearing, it is seeing. It is word and deed. That's why we refer to it as word and sacrament. What the sermon says to the ear, the Lord's Supper says to the senses. It's really quite a beautiful thing. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. But it's not as though God is unmindful of the fact that we have other senses. And so the Lord's Supper, uh, it, it is that visible portrait, that living drama that God would have us to see. And even in a certain sense, the world to see. 
I mentioned this in the baptism sermon a couple weeks ago, and I'll make, make the similar connection here, that it ought to capture our attention that God did not give his people pictures of himself. I'm not trying to beat that subject to death, but it's worth noting here that when Moses went up the mountain and he saw God, God didn't send him down with a, with a selfie. God did not give him a picture and say, you know, this is, this is exactly what I want everywhere in every church so that you know exactly what I look like. Even when Jesus walked upon the earth, there's no record of any pictures being made, no description of his height, color of his eyes, little nuances. It's no small thing than in a world uh, before the proliferation of books, when many things were visual, that God did not give his people pictures of himself in the Old or the New Testament. But that is not to say that he disregarded the visual. The visual that he gave added to the word for the other senses, particularly sight, are his sacraments. This is why they should be such a, a big deal. That the sacraments are what God wants to see. They are the motion picture of the gospel that God wants his people see. The sacraments make what the word says palpable to the other senses. And not only uh, is it visible in a certain sense, and this is Paul's point here, it's evangelistic. When you pause and think about it, uh, the Lord's Supper calls people who might yet be outside the faith to repentance and faith. It draws a line in the sand and asks the question, on which side do you stand? Are you with God through faith in Christ? Or are you yet outside of the church? It makes the gospel visible. It gives the preacher one last chance at application. It gives the church one last opportunity to listen. And not only that, but to taste and to see. To taste and to see, as the psalm says, that the Lord is good. On the one hand, God does not want drama in church. This is why we don't do liturgical dance. But he does want the drama of the supper before our eyes, that we might see and hear the goodness of our God. So on the one hand, we should say with caution, uh, pictures, I don't know, look closely at the second commandment. But sacraments, these are hugely important and should not be in dispute, which is why I'm so puzzled, and I admit genuinely puzzled, that uh, so much of the church generally and broadly speaking, loves motion pictures in church and has very little interest in the Lord's Supper. Do you see the irony? The pictures God hasn't given, we've put on the stage, and the picture God has given, we've silenced and muted. The Lord's Supper is not only evangelistic, it's also eschatological. Big word of the day. I think there was a time when someone in our church many years ago when I was younger threatened that there was no such thing as a sermon Eric preached that didn't have that word in it. I outgrew it, but it's still a really great word. It's a really great word. And Paul draws this to our attention when he uses this final phrase here at the end, until he comes. Not only does the church proclaim with a collective voice the death of the Lord, but it proclaims until he comes. And what does that imply? If he's coming, he's not dead. If he's coming again, he'll be back. 
The Lord's Supper enables the church to say with a beautiful voice, Jesus died, the lamb was slain, and God was pleased to pass over our sins. But it also enables the church to say, not simply with word, but also with deed, and he's coming again. And if there's one thing that the world needs to be told, it's that Jesus is coming back. And if there's one thing that the church needs to hear over and over, regularly and regularly, repeated and repeatedly, it's that he's coming back for you. He's coming back for you. That's good news. And it's good news that we proclaim until he comes. So in a certain sense, the Lord's Supper looks back. It signals us towards the past. Jesus came. It assures us of a promise that he is present with us even now in the administration of the sacraments. And it points our faith forward to the fact that Jesus will come again for his church. In the Reformation period, there were interesting views on the Lord's Supper. Some of them are a little bit uh, heretical, others perfectly confusing, and a couple that were outright fantastic. Which one do you hold? Well, let's do the quick walkthrough. The Roman Catholic Church took the view that after the preacher said his words, the priest said his words, his little hocus pocus, the elements magically turned into the actual body and blood of Christ, and that Jesus somehow continued to suffer over and over again, adding to what was necessary to save us, making it possible for us to continue adding to it as well. Survey says, not good. But I wonder sometimes if on the far flip side, evangelicals today have taken the perfect opposite view. If Roman Catholics said it did everything, I wonder sometimes if we pretend that it does nothing. And maybe that's part of the reason why we've quietly walked it out the back door. Blame a man named Zwingli, who said the Lord's Supper in many ways is like a wedding ring. It doesn't actually do anything, but it reminds us that something happened in the past. Again, trying to get away from Rome, he probably got too far away from the actual intent of the Supper, which is best expressed in the Reformed Confessions and through Calvin, who had a wonderful way of looking at the Supper. He said, it's, it's not what the Roman Catholic Church says. The elements don't turn into something they're not. But it's far more than what Zwingli said. It's not simply a reminder that something happened in the past. But that through faith, the true believer truly communes with Christ. That Jesus Christ is the host of the Supper. And that we actually partake in his body and blood, but not physically only spiritually, yet really and truly spiritually, so that to partake of the Lord's Supper was to feed upon Christ spiritually. That by his spirit, he is truly there. He is the host of the table. And that by his spirit, as surely as the physical element strengthen your body, so also through both word and sacrament would he strengthen our souls. Calvin loved the Lord's Supper. Ironically, I, I truly do find it an irony. I may share this in common with him. Uh, he argued strongly for weekly communion and never got it. They never let him have it in Geneva. It's a, it's a great irony. It just never worked out for him. Heaven was better. And so, anyway. But this is why the Lord's Supper is so important. It causes us to give thanks to God But it also causes us, I'm starting to attempt to land the plane here, not simply to give thanks to God, but back to 1 Corinthians 
to give to one another. Because the Christian life is rightly summarized as giving and receiving. We give because we've received and all that we have has come from the hand of one who gives quite generously. This is why it was such a shame that the Corinthians had so distorted it and taken the living drama of the table of the Lord and converted it to a horror show of drunkenness and selfishness. They made it about themselves instead of about Christ and one another. And Paul's remedy for their absence of servanthood was to point them to the clear portrait, the clear portrait of the servant and savior of sinners. Thanksgiving and servanthood really become the living themes of the supper, which is why it's not a funeral. You go to a funeral for someone who has died, but Jesus lives. And because he lives and we have life in him, we celebrate. We celebrate. So there's a couple thoughts in conclusion, a couple of points, if you will, of application. I'm not sure where else I get to say these things, so I want to say them here. I want to talk about preparing. I think I could make a reasonably decent argument for a weekly communion. Not Not an airtight one. And actually, for me, it's not even a point to argue over. I'm actually uh, pretty happy with the frequency that we have it here. Paul's language uh, earlier in the chapter, for as often as you come together, it's interesting how not specific it is. It kind of gives you the impression that whenever they came together, but maybe not. Uh, So you never know. Calvin made a pretty good argument for it. And like Calvin, I feel like I've tried, but hey, it's okay. But what about preparing? Let me come back to that. Because arguably, and this has actually been one of the arguments in church history, a very pastoral argument against weekly communion is the fact that people don't prepare. And I think I could leave a long pause there and this silence would have its way with you. People don't prepare. Some, like Calvin, thought so highly of the Lord's Supper, he wanted it weekly. Others, like Scott's Presbyterians, thought so highly of the Lord's Supper, they did it once a year. They had communion seasons where they would literally preach for a while, building up to the Lord's Supper. And then it would be like a wedding on the day that they would did it. And the elders would come and visit and give people tokens, uh, paying them pastoral visits, saying, okay, yes, you've got your house in order and you had to present your token before you came and partook of the supper. Uh, that's considerably overboard, but it makes a point. I think you get the point that preparing has often been considered a very important part of the supper. The absence of it almost feels like being a functional Roman Catholic, as though we think that, that all that really happens happens at the moment of the supper, and therefore there's no reason to prepare. But a great correction to that would actually be to go back and read the larger catechism on what we ought to do before the supper, during the supper, and even after the supper in reflection. So for as much as I might like to playfully argue uh, for weekly, and I have a little fun with this subject, I think there's actually great reason, and this is what our church did in Florida as well, exactly what we have right here, uh, for the way that we have it. But my encouragement would be that we ought to take time and prepare. I should not be the only one preparing for my sermons on Sunday morning. 
and I should not be the only one preparing for the supper. You should join me in that preparation as well. So what matters, in sum, to land the plane and run away quickly, is not so much how often we do it, but perhaps how well. The problem with the Corinthians was not frequency. The problem was selfishness and spiritual shallowness. So what matters is not how often, but how meaningfully uh, we celebrate the supper. Why? Because the Lord's Supper, just like the Christian life, is all about giving and receiving. We give because Jesus first gave to us, and he gives us all things freely in himself. And because we have received all those things, all things freely in him, we have something to celebrate. Let's pray. Lord, it would be easy for us to look at the Corinthian church and say, wow, they were really a mess. And it would be right. There was a great measure of selfishness, self-indulgence that seemed to color in what otherwise would have been a beautiful portrait, uh, the portrait of the Lord's Supper, that living drama displayed before not only the eyes of the church, but perhaps even a watching world. But Lord, we might admit for our own sakes, a bit of selfishness as well. It might not be that we come eating in abundance before those who are hungry and humiliated. And it might not be that we come and get drunk. But there are other forms of selfishness, Lord, that we could confess. We know what it means to neglect to do things that we ought to do. And when it comes to the matter of preparation, Lord, there's probably a lot more that we could and should be doing. And then as it comes to not simply receiving, uh, but being prompted to give, looking to the needs of others and esteeming others as more important than ourselves and taking note of those who have lack and from our abundance being eager to give and to share. Uh, Lord, we all know uh, that there is room for growth in our hearts, in our lives, and in our practice. And so again, Lord, we we would think about the fact that the church has a collective voice. Until Jesus comes, we proclaim the death and the resurrection of our Lord, the Lord Jesus, to a watching world and even to our own hearts. And so we ask, Lord, that you'd help us to do that well. Help us to esteem highly the word pictures that you've given in Scripture, namely the sacrament of baptism and the Lord's Supper. Help us not to be like those who believe that there is something magical taking place, or those who, on the other hand, find virtually no meaning in it at all. Lord, might we celebrate together and do so in such a way that you would receive the glory and honor you deserve from your church. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.